Psalm 25 happens to be my favorite psalm, actually. It is the first psalm in the Psalter that is an acrostic. You might notice that there are 22 verses in Psalm 25, and you might also know that there are 25 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so the way that Psalm 25 is written is that each, in Hebrew nonetheless, each verse begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so here we have this passage of Scripture, Psalm 25. Now, Psalm 25 in its entirety is really, uh, it's, it's a going back and forth, if you will, between meditation and prayer. Meditation and prayer. So David, David is meditating on the things of God, and it seemed appropriate that we, at this juncture in the life of our church, would consider one thing this morning, and that is the goodness of God. The goodness of God. So absolutely, the focus of this passage of Scripture, uh, Psalm 25, verses 8 through 15, is the goodness of God. And so, again, David focuses on certain aspects of God's goodness, certain reflexes and fruits of that goodness, and also he also slips into prayer. There is one verse in this passage, 8 through 15, where David is praying. And that's verse 11. And so I would like to draw you into this passage as we consider, again, what it is. Let's, let's just very briefly consider some of the uh, beginning verses here. Again, our focus on verses 8 through 15. Let's look at verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The context of David's entire life was a context in which he was at war. Uh, David was one who had to involve himself in military operations every moment of his life. The Lord prepared him for that. Uh, He uh, rarely got a rest. His son Solomon had somewhat of a rest, but David really not so much. And so we recognize that David was one who would look and have to look often for relief in desperate situations. He may be involved in a certain battle, for instance, where he would need replacements. He would need more people. Or he may need to think of a different tactic or strategy upon which would rest success. And what we see here in verse 1 is simply this idea that as David's eyes range to and fro, he recognized that the only relief that he would have would be in God. His eye would range the countryside and he would realize that his only hope was in God Almighty. Now, this doesn't mean that God won't and see, often, often does use the means of other people for which to provide help. But the point is this, is that David recognized that his hope, his help was in the Lord and the Lord's provision for him. And that, of course, is foundational to this passage of Scripture. In verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Again, as we consider... The, the part of this in verses 8 through 15, it's important that uh, what is the very foundation of David's prayer and meditation here? Occasionally, my children take me rock climbing. I don't tend to get very far up because I can't 
put my feet or my hands in the place where they need to be. And if I can't put my hand on the place of security or my foot on the place of security, then there, there's no alternative. There, there's, I can't go anywhere except down, right? Without a foothold, I'm going nowhere rock climbing. And David recognizes that without trust in God, his prayers and his meditation and his entire life are going nowhere. Trust is this very foundation upon which our, our faith in Christ is built, our prayers in the Lord are built, our going forward is built. It is this trust. It is the very foothold. If you go to the Lord and pray... And you don't trust God. Then you would be in the same situation. When the seasoned saint was asked by another who didn't trust in God, would you like me to pray? And he would say, no, no, I I don't. I don't want you to pray. I'll pray. Because I trust in God. And trust is the very foothold of prayer. And so David understands this idea. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Put to shame? Why would David be concerned about shame? as he trusts in the Lord. Well, I would ask you to turn to 1 Samuel 13 to see some shame for trusting in the Lord. The appropriate lack thereof. First Samuel 13. Saul seemed to be in the favor of the Lord for a pretty short period of time. As Saul is fighting the Philistines, he recognized the need to make a sacrifice before he went into battle. First Samuel 13. In verse 8, he waited, that is Saul, seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. This is a serious matter. Saul recognizes that he has a battle to fight, and the people around him, while they're all waiting on the sacrifice by, by Samuel, things are beginning to fall apart. Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me here, verse 9, and the peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come with in the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. 
But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Saul was ashamed. He was ashamed for following God. It didn't go well. This is what David is getting at here. The reality is, is that when we wait or when we follow God or when we go His way, the reality is, is the people around us, they, they may mock us. They may laugh at us. We may be uncomfortable. It's kind, of like, it's kind of like waiting on a ride and it just passes you by. That's the idea behind this shame idea that David's bringing up in Psalm 25. But those who wait on God will not be ashamed. They will not be ashamed. That's the idea. In verses 4 and 5, I would draw your attention as we, again, prepare to look at 8 through 15. Of one thing, in verses 4 and 5, count them with me if you'd like, David asks to be taught of the Lord four times. All in the context, as I said, of God's goodness. Make me know your ways. That's one. Oh Lord, teach me your paths. That's two. Lead me in your truth and teach me. That's three and four. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. A fruit of the goodness of God. And certainly an aspect of the trust that David had in God was simply this idea that he would be instructed by the Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. The goodness and faithfulness of God are the fountain of the believer's strength. The goodness and faithfulness of God are the fountain of the believer's strength. This is a very different idea than false religions have for God. I can assure you that no Muslim obeys Allah because of his goodness and uprightness. That's not the idea that they have with their false idea of God. The goodness and faithfulness of God are the fountain of the believer's strength. The reality is is that we, we have to continually have our own vision and our minds sanctified such that we can see that what the Lord is doing and what He brings into our lives is in fact categorically good. It's categorically good. And that God is always categorically good. And upright. Oh, well, he did this. Oh, well, look at what the Lord has done over here. He's done this. And while we may not understand everything, we know that categorically God is good. He's upright. And so it's very important for us that when we think about what it is we see the Lord doing or what we see him allowing to do, that we immediately understand that categorically this is good. And so I need to look at it and focus on it with that mindset. That this is goodness of the Lord. Well, you say it's painful. Well, you say this is difficult. Well, you say this brings shame to me. Well, you say this is a financial reversal. Or you say this, has, this is very dark for a relationship. Well, you say, what is God doing? And who is God? Upright is the Lord. And so we must think of it 
in those terms and begin again to understand and to respond in such a way is that we recognize categorically that God is good. The Bible says in Romans 8.28 that God's sovereign plan works all for the believer's good. Psalm 33.5 He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now you may say, really? Really? The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord? I didn't see that today. Well, that's because you need to be instructed in the ways of the Lord. That's why David asks four times, Teach me, O Lord. Instruct me in your way so that I can see the steadfast love of the Lord. Yes, we know that at the end of all things, there'll be, there'll be no guesswork as to the way that the glory of God covers the land as the water covers the oceans. But nonetheless, the reality is this, the earth is filled with the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. The Lord is good. You say, well, I don't see that. So get your eyes fixed. God isn't broken. The Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge. 25, 8. Excuse me, Psalm 34, 8. Nahum 1, 7, The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. He knows those who take refuge in Him. It's appropriate that you ask the question, Do you know God? That's a good question. But there might be a more important question than that. And that's a question that's brought up right here. Right here in Nahum 1.7, the question here is, does God know you? Does God know you? Because if God knows you, if He knows you by way of redemption, by way of salvation, then things are different for you. You're experiencing... Uh, not only uh, this general devotion that the Creator has to His creation, but you're enjoying the preferential love of God. Biblical religion is not a Gnosticism in such that it takes secret knowledge to know God. But there is secret knowledge in our biblical religion, and that's for those who God knows. The secrets of the Lord is for God's people. Romans 2.4 Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You say, well, I, I didn't see that. I, I didn't see the kindness of God leading me to repentance. It was something else. Well, no. Again, we're thinking in biblical categories. That is an expression of God's kindness to you. That which drew you in 
to repentance. That is an expression of God's love to you. Second part of verse 8, Therefore He instructs sinners in the way. Therefore He instructs sinners in the way. Don't miss the logic of the verse. Good and upright is the Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Okay. Is that merely a statement of fact? No. It's a statement of causation. Therefore. Therefore. He instructs sinners in the way. The preferential instruction of the Lord to His redeemed is the fruit of His goodness. The instruction of the Lord is an absolute necessity to live faithfully in Christ while we walk the sinful earth. Yet it is in fallen humans to display with such freeness and depth profess mastery on seemingly any subject. To consider the earnest study of the Word of God to be so much Sunday school fluff is likened to setting out on a long journey and considering such things as food, water, knowledge of the terrain, and a map as things utterly unnecessary for undiminished success. This isn't a mark of infantile ignorance. It's profoundly foolish. To consider the earnest study of the Word of God to be so much Sunday school fluff is likened to setting out on a long journey and considering such things as food, water, knowledge of the terrain, and map as things utterly unnecessary for undiminished success. God instructs us because He is good. Left our own devices, we will die the eternal death and make a horrible mess of our short life here on earth. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right. He leads the humble in what is right. Were you to underline words in your Bible, you might consider these three in this first part of verse 9. Leads, humble, and right. The humble need, the rather the humble know their need of guidance and are willing to submit their own understandings to the will of God. The proud. They have no idea of their need of guidance. They're utterly shocked that there's something that's necessary for their own progress and that they don't know. There's a pervasive untruth in the land that spiritual leadership has to do with leading someone in a sinner's prayer and nothing more. What is spiritual leadership? Romans 1.11 says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 1 Corinthians 2.13 And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.15 The spiritual person judges all things, but it is himself to be judged by no one. The Bible says in verse 9, He leads the humble in what is right. 
Among other things, this is categorically about morality. The foundation of our very trust is God's goodness. The foundation of David's prayer is God's goodness and His uprightness. And what is, he, what is it that He instructs the humble in His way? Where among other things, we see that it is about what is right. What is right. It does appear that most people believe they're fully capable of making a seasoned moral decision on any subject from the stuff of their own minds and experiences. It's one of my favorite lines in Charles Dickens' book, The Christmas Carol, when he speaks about Ebenezer Scrooge's capability as he anticipates the ghost of Marley coming into his house. He says, most men think that they're capable of anything, I may get this quote wrong, from tiddlywinks to manslaughter. We think that we can make morally upright decisions from the stuff in our own minds and experiences. There is a word for this, and it is called evolution. That's evolution. And evolution has never enjoyed biblical orthodoxy. To think that you're going to create something out of the stuff in your head is insanity. God teaches us what is right. To unhitch moral decision-making from the careful study of God's Word is to be your own God. You do not have the capability, nor do I, of bringing order from disorder. Bringing order from disorder. Only God can do that. And He does it because He's good. God is good. He teaches us what is right and moral. You see, Eve was persuaded that she was going to unhitch the knowledge of God from her moral decision uh, in stating that categorically the tree of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in fact good and not bad. And what Eve was doing, very simply, was she was making a moral decision unhitched from the teaching of God. And yet we do that every day. We, we speak freely, freely about things. We wind jam over and over again about this is right and this is wrong. And we never think about what it is that the Word of God says based on the goodness of God. Fools are proud of their own wisdom and will not learn. Don't miss this. If you're proud of your wisdom, you fall into the category of a fool. You're following yourself and you will not make it to your intended destination. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer. He will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 15, 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. He won't go there. 
Humble hearts sit at Jesus' feet. A humble heart sits at the feet of Christ. And what do they find there? They find the gate of heaven. Christ is the great shepherd. He's not the way to the gate. He is the gate. There's no place for a proud heart at the feet of Christ. We sit as students. The very name that we're called is that of learner. Methetes, disciple. That's, that's how he knows us. He doesn't call us master, we call him master. God's goodness is the foundation of trusting in God's ways. God's goodness is the foundation of David's trust of his prayer. God's goodness is the foundation of our own moral decision-making. God's goodness is the foundation of trusting in His ways. Do you trust in God's ways? Do you press the ways of God into the form of your own understanding? Or do you press your own understanding into the form of the ways of God? Do you guys ever have these little molds with Play-Doh? Do you guys ever have those? You stuff the Play-Doh in this big thing and you squish it down and out comes like stars and, I mean, all kinds of pretty cool stuff. Spaghetti, you know what I'm saying? It's pretty cool. Do we stuff our own thinking into the form of Christ's Word? Or... Do we take to ourselves as humble learners the things of Christ and apply them to the form of our own lives? Do you trust in God's ways? The goodness of God is the foundation of our followership of God. The goodness of God is the foundation of our followership of God. By the way, I've discovered that there is a niche market in the area of book writing. I would like to ask you, and we don't really go into bookstores these days, there aren't very many of them, but I would like to ask you, if you would, to go to a bookstore and look for the section that says followership. Have you, have you seen that section anywhere? Uh, biblical followership. I mean, there is a tremendous opportunity for all of the budding writers in here. Because there doesn't appear to be very many titles that have anything to do with following. Now, I recognize that there's a lot, uh, a lot of space given to biblical leadership. I understand that. So that, I wouldn't recommend uh, necessarily that you would step into that particular category if you're looking for the niche, but in this followership idea. The Bible says in 20, 25, 9, He teaches the humble His way. His way. His way. If the pronouns referring to the Lord Jesus Christ or to God were 
capitalized here as they are, thankfully, in a few other versions, you would notice that the personal pronoun here for the word His would be capitalized. His way. His way. We're following God in His way. It's not our way. It's His way. We're following God. He is leading. We're led. We're led. We're led. Perhaps the most telling characteristic of an individual concerns whether or not he or she is teachable. It's usually apparent right off, actually. Are you teachable? Are you willing to learn? How difficult is you is it for you to learn from others? Can you really enter into the fact that you don't actually always know what is best? Think about that for a minute. Has it ever occurred to you, forgive me for some sarcasm, that you could be wrong? Because you haven't considered what the Word of God says. Do you routinely force your opinion on others such that they give in? And are you persuaded in these moments that your own wisdom has prevailed? Or have you admitted all that has prevailed is your forcefulness? Those who give in to impertinence don't necessarily do so because of superior logic or wisdom. They just want to move on. The goodness of God ensures us that His way is what we must learn and not our own. Our own way is off the chart or out of the lane. Our own way is not God's way. God is showing us His way. And verse 10 assures us that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And you say, well, I don't, the path I'm on right now, man, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, this is, this is like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, steadfast love and faithfulness? Let's think about what it is the Lord is doing. God is good to those who are good. The goodness of God projected upon His creatures is certainly not all dependent upon the disposition of the creature toward God. And all of the goodness of God to His elect is certainly not dependent upon His or her disposition towards God. However, certain aspects of His goodness certainly are dependent upon the careful following of God. While grace enables us to obey the Lord's will, we need not fear that God's providence will cause us any loss. Gracious souls resting upon the finished work of Christ keep the covenant of the Lord. They walk in His testimonies. Psalm 23 has six verses in it. In Psalm 23, the last verse says, Surely goodness and mercy will go before me all the days of my life. Is that what it says? Now what does it say? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The paths of God are good, but they're not safe. They're littered with challenge and difficulty. But what follows? 
is the goodness of God. Verse 11 is this prayer. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. As David is brought to this deeper understanding of the goodness of God, of the uprightness of God, of the purposes of God. what He stands in the presence of the holy, right? And what happens when we get near holiness? We're struck with a breathtaking dose of our own creatureliness. And that's what happens to David here. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Not for our sake or through some merit of our own, for your sake, O oh Lord, pardon my iniquity. Are you more concerned about the sorrows that sin brings or about the sin itself? One old saint asked the question, Is your weeping like the weeping brought on by an onion? The problem is only in your eyes in that case. Or is your weeping brought on by a conscience that's tender and has been directed toward repentance by God? Verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? This question is for us. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Who is the woman who fears the Lord? Who is, who is the boy who fears the Lord? Who is the girl who fears the Lord? It should provoke self-examination. Gospel mercies are not for the mere professor of faith. Have you been born again? Who is the one who fears the Lord? Hopefully you can say, I do. I do. Not perfectly. Not always. Not as much as I should. But I fear the Lord. He is awesome and holy. And He also dwells with the humble. Those whom He's called to Himself. Him will He instruct in the way that he should choose. This is another this is another great plan. This is a plan in this case not to get your book sold on following Christ, but this plan is how to always get what you want. Now who in here wants to always get what they want? I mean, I always want to get what I want course, unless I discover I really shouldn't want it, then I hope I don't want it anymore. But here is the secret to always get what you want. If you could decide that you only want what God wants. Now, it's not really a trick, okay? It's just that God has said, if you, if you want to get what you want, then want what I want for you to want, and then you'll get what you want. It's very simple. It's not Dr. Seuss, okay? It's right here. It's right here. You want what you want. Want what God wants, and then you get what you want. I can't repeat that. Verse 13, His soul shall abide in well-being. It is an abundance, but content or contentedness that brings one true ease. 
Abide in well-being. Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret. Here's the secret knowledge I was telling you about the redeemed. Of facing plenty and hunger in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So here's the, here's the Apostle Paul here. It's, I picture him as this scrappy guy. He's had all kinds of torture, spent days and night at sea. Let down in a basket over a wall. He's stoned, left for dead. And he says, I've figured this out. Because God is with me. And I am in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I know the Lord and He knows me. I'm not faking it here. The secret of the Lord is to be content in what He has given to me. The landowner looks down at the shepherd boy as he passes by in the rain and he says, Wow, pretty tough weather, huh? He says, No. This is the weather that my master has decided that I'll have today. And so I'll be happy with the rain. His offspring shall inherit the land. It's the goodness of God that we can trust His hand through our present circumstances, though they may be difficult. It's the goodness of God that we can trust Him with our children as we enter into His statutes. Verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. What did Jesus say? Well, He said a lot of things. But he called the redeemed, his followers, he called them what? He called them friends. This is the secret of the Lord. To be the friend of God. For the redeemed. The foundation of that is the goodness of God. He values friendship. True friendship. Familiar intercourse, relational depth, preferential fellowship. The friendship of God is not evacuated from those things that we value in true friendship. Verse 15. I would like for you to look at verse 15 in a reverse order, if you will. And I would ask you the question, where... Is the psalmist's feet. Where are the psalmist's feet right now in verse 15? He's uh, regaling on the goodness of God, isn't he? He's 
over and over. God is upright. He is good. He is a friend to sinners, those who are redeemed. God, God shows us the way. He gives to us an understanding of what is right, allows us uh, a path to follow. We're following Him. And yet, where, where, are, the, where are the psalmist's feet right now? Where are they? Where, where are they? Are they? Are they on a safe way? Where are they? You say, I know, he wrote this in an ivory tower somewhere, sipping prehistoric coffee or something like that. Where were his feet? They're in a net. That's not a trampoline, it's a net. It's a net. Nets are used by deceivers to capture. But his eyes are ever toward the Lord. He has fixed his trust on God. He is constant with the Lord. He looks in confidence and waits on hope. Where are his feet? They're in a net. What is he doing right now? Well, he's doing the same thing that he did in verses 1 and 2. He is looking and recognizing that his only hope is in God. And note well what he isn't doing. He's not setting his hair on fire. He's not losing his mind. He's not slandering everyone that he knows. He's not calling God wicked names. As the Apostle Paul and as the Apostle Peter have said in their writings, the psalmist here is doing simply the work of the redeemed. He is a quiet professional with his feet in the net, looking to God as the servant looks to the eyes of his master. May we do that today. Let us pray.